Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, we do pray now that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand your word. And would you open our hearts to be changed by your word and conformed uh, to your thinking and to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whatever you want, whatever you like, whatever you say, you pay your money, you take your choice. Uh, Those words were sung by the band Status Quo, and they used to be the background for an advert uh, for Argos, and you'd see flashing up on the screen um, as those words were sung, a hairdryer, a sofa, a watch, a phone, a TV um, uh, on the screen. And it makes a very appropriate soundtrack for a a consumer-driven society, doesn't it? Whatever you want, whatever you like, whatever you say, you pay your money, you take your choice. Well, that's what we're used to as consumers. We decide what we want, we pay our money, and then we get it. Uh, The danger with that is that we begin to take that way of thinking into our expectations of God, what we expect him to be for us or to do for us, to be whatever we want. And last week, we read of the disciples finally seeing who Jesus really is. Peter finally identified Jesus rightly with those four words, you are the Christ, But what we find this morning is that their sight was still limited. Like the blind man, halfway through the healing earlier in the chapter, they were seeing in part but not in full because they hadn't seen or understood what the Christ had come to do. They had a pretty good idea of what kind of Christ they wanted him to be, one who came to liberate the nation of Israel from the humiliation of oppressive Roman rule, one who would reign over them perfectly as their promised king, but they're about to discover that Jesus isn't planning to be the Christ they thought they wanted. He won't be whatever you want, whatever you like, whatever you say. I have two young boys, they're three and one, and they have a very good idea of what they want from one moment to the next, and they make their views very, very clear to us. Sometimes, of course, it's fine for them to have what they want, and we let them have it, but our role as parents is not just to give them the things they think they want, but the things that we know they need even if they protest, even if they don't understand. What are you and I looking for from Jesus? What type of Christ or saviour are we wanting him to be to us? There may be nothing wrong with the things that we want, and it may be that he gives them to us. But Jesus came with a clear mission, which he was determined to complete for our sake. And so he may not be the Christ we think we want, but he is the Christ he knows we need. The disciples have seen that Jesus is the Christ, but they've failed to understand what the Christ has come to do. And so, verse 31, he, Jesus, then began to teach them. Having settled the issue of Jesus' identity, Mark's gospel now turns to consider what the Christ has come to do, his mission. And this is what Jesus taught them. Verse 31 he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And the verse goes on. But before we go on, let's just pause there because Jesus uses this unusual title, the Son of Man. It's a name he used for himself, but he could have just carried on with the title that Peter had used just a few moments before, that the Christ. Or he could have said, I will suffer many things. Instead, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's a name that comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7, which we had read for us a few moments ago. 
And the key here is to understanding how the Son of Man is described there as a powerful, triumphant figure. It says he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we might have expected Mark 8 to read something like this. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must sweep away all opposition to his kingly rule and rise to his rightful place of power and authority and glory. That would have fitted. That's the kind of Christ the disciples had been hoping for, which is why the rest of Jesus' sentence is so surprising and so shocking to them. Look down again at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must, what must he do? He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. It's an extraordinary prediction by Jesus. The Christ, the triumphant Son of Man, suffering, being rejected, killed. And notice Jesus is talking about him being utterly rejected by the whole of the establishment of Israel. The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Together they formed the Sanhedrin, the the religious council. A council in which we know that there there were deep factions and divisions and rivalries. But Jesus says they'll all be united together in this one thing, their comprehensive rejection of him. Wow. That's not what the disciples expected Jesus to have come to do. He mentions something there about rising again after three days, but the disciples seem not to get as far as considering that because they're still caught up with the idea that Jesus might have to suffer in the first place. It's his suffering, rejection, and death that provoke the reaction that we're about to see. They had so much hope built up on Jesus as the Christ, but now his description of what he's come to do is, for them, a stunning anticlimax. Jesus here is deliberately holding up the triumphant figure of the Son of Man against his own plan to suffer, be rejected, and die in order to show the disciples this mismatch that they haven't understood properly what he, the Christ, had come to do. It's not that this is new teaching to the Bible, by the way. Jesus is simply unpacking Old Testament teaching about what the Christ would do. But the disciples had been perhaps reading their Old Testament a little selectively. They'd got in mind the Son of Man idea from Daniel 7, power, authority, glory. But not, for example, the suffering servant idea from Isaiah 53, which has exactly the pattern Jesus predicts here. Isaiah 53 describes the Christ as one who would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. It went on to say he would be cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave, but that after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. It's exactly the pattern that Jesus describes here. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. Jesus isn't giving new teaching, just old teaching the disciples had failed to grasp. And note he says this must happen. It's not one option among many. It's not plan A with plans B and C standing by. The Son of Man must suffer. It's absolutely necessary. Jesus repeats this prediction twice in the next two chapters in very similar words to make it clear to the disciples this is not up for grabs. This is going to happen. There is no other way. 
Why is this plan for Jesus so set in stone? Well, because, as Jesus later says in the gospel, the scriptures must be fulfilled, scriptures like Isaiah 53, and because the scriptures reflect the the will of God the Father for Jesus, and because Jesus is determined to do his Father's will, yet not what I will, but what you will, Jesus prayed the night before he died. And so when Jesus was led to a cross, it wasn't because he was surrounded by soldiers preventing his escape or because of any other external compulsion, it was because of his own internal resolve to fulfill what had been written of him. He chose to die. He chose it. When I've spoken with people about these verses in the past, people who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians, a common question people ask is, but why did that have to be part of the plan? Why was it in the plan in the first place that he would die? And I love that question because the answer takes us right to the heart of the gospel. He had to die because there was no other way for him to save the world. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've known that the consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6 says. But we've all sinned. And so Jesus had to receive the death our sins deserve in our place as our substitute so that we might not. He had to die for us to live. He had to bleed for us to be healed. He had to be punished for us to go free. There was no other way for him to save us from the consequences of our sin but to take them on himself. The Old Bailey down in London is the central criminal court for England and Wales, dealing with uh, more major cases, the sort that hit the news, which is why most of us have heard of it, the Old Bailey. And on the roof of the Old Bailey is a golden statue of Lady Justice with her arms stretched out. In one hand, she holds the scales of justice, and in the other, the sword of judgment. And the message is clear. The accused will be weighed and tested in the scales of justice, And if found guilty, the sword of judgment must and will fall. But across the skyline stands another building, St. Paul's Cathedral, with another golden image standing on top of it, a cross. And the message of the cross is this, that as Jesus stretched out his arms and died, the sword of God's judgment did fall on him for the sins of the world. In the first sermon in this series, at the start of chapter 7, we saw that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, because out of our hearts come all kinds of evil and sin. Do you remember Pete had that mug full of water and bumped it and the water spilled out? And that's a picture of our hearts, that the circumstances of life come along and, and bump us, and out comes a sinful response. And we blame the circumstances saying, well, they made me sin, but actually, really, they just exposed the sin that was in our hearts all along. That's our problem. We are sin-filled people that deserve God's judgment. If the heart of the human problem is sin, the whole of God's solution is the cross. God's justice fell on Jesus that his forgiveness might flow to us. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. That we might be forgiven. He had to die. There was no other way. 
the sword of God's justice had to fall either on him or on us. Jesus chose death to win us life and forgiveness forever. That's the heart of the gospel. We have to see and understand it. And that's why Jesus, in verse 32, says Jesus spoke plainly about this. Nothing cryptic or veiled, he told them straight. But do you see how Peter reacted? Verse 32 again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And that really is remarkable when you consider that just a few moments before, Peter has said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the promised king. God himself come to rescue us. And now he's taking him on one side and presuming to give him a telling off. Hang on, Jesus, I think you need to be put in your place a bit. It's an extraordinarily inconsistent thing for him to do. If he's the Christ, you don't tell him what he's come to do. That Peter was able to be so inconsistent shows us just how horrifying it was for him and the disciples to contemplate what Jesus was saying he'd come to do. They'd been hoping for a Christ who would save them from political oppression and tyranny. They couldn't understand or accept the idea of a Christ who would be rejected and killed. What good would a dead Christ be to us, they might have thought. This isn't the Christ Peter thought he wanted because he doesn't see the need for the cross. Peter wanted to shh Jesus and get him to change his plan. Jesus said he must die. Peter said no, rejecting the need for the cross. There are efforts still today to mute the message of the cross, to downplay its necessity, because the message of the cross, let's be clear, is offensive. It requires us to admit the seriousness of our sin and the need for judgment. We don't like to think that our sin is really that bad, but the cross says it is. I wonder where you think those efforts to mute the message of the cross are coming from today. Some in the wider church mute the message of the cross because they outright deny it. They reduce it to merely a good example of self-sacrifice, even though the Bible is quite clear it's more than that. But then there are others who mute the message of the cross, not by denying it, but by just going quiet about it, because it's not very popular. And where do you think that kind of muting is coming from? Because for that, I think we probably need to look closer to home. Here in Mark's gospel, It wasn't Jesus' opponents, but his closest followers, the disciples who were trying to mute the message of the cross. And I think we can so easily slip into doing the same, and I see this in myself. How often we downplay the seriousness of our sins by simply calling them mistakes and pass off the need for judgment, saying, well, no one's perfect. Rico Tice, a church minister down in London, writes this. It is often those of us who think of ourselves as spiritual or religious who are the most offended by the cross and who go to the greatest lengths to reject the God who hung on it. We want to consider ourselves as good, moral, acceptable to God. We want to earn heaven, not to have to be given it. You see, the cross isn't just the fulfillment of our greatest need, It is the public declaration of it. It says, this is what it took to save you. Your sin is so great, this is what it cost. 
It's not just the, great, the fulfillment of our greatest need, the public declaration of it. When sharing our faith with our friends or even discussing it with each other, we can so easily be tempted to mute the message of the cross by denying it, or perhaps not by denying it explicitly, but by focusing on just other things, other benefits of being a Christian, a sense of peace, knowing you're loved and accepted, a great community, the guarantee of heaven, all true and good things. But do you see the cross continues to stand stubbornly, insistently at the heart of the gospel? Our sin deserved death, but Jesus, driven by love, died on the cross in our place. At the heart of the gospel is a man bleeding, groaning, dying for you and me. He had to die. That's the heart of the gospel, and it must be heard. It's something we need to see and understand and believe in order to be Christians. And if you don't accept and believe this, you're not yet a Christian. The message of the cross is good news. Not for those who think they're good, but for those who know they're bad. If we admit that we're sinful people, with hearts that fail to love or live for God, and if we turn to him asking for forgiveness, the cross cries, yes, yes, let forgiveness flow. Jesus Christ and his cross is the best news in the world. We must never mute it or or downplay our sin and the need for the cross. That's why Jesus responded to Peter in the way that he did. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but, verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his, his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And we might be blown away by the strength of Jesus' response to Peter here, and we'd be right to be. But the strength of Jesus' response shows us the seriousness of the must in verse 31. Jesus must die. He says, get behind me, Satan, because the cross was the most good and loving thing anyone has ever done. And so any attempt to divert Jesus from doing such a perfect good is perfectly evil. This is actually a moment where we see Jesus' love. Do you think Jesus wasn't tempted to avoid the cross? Of course he was. If he had been driven by self-interest, he'd have run a mile from the cross, but he didn't. He ran towards it. Jesus doesn't respond with such strength here because he's full of anger towards Peter, but because he's full of love for him and is determined that he must die in his place and in yours and in mine. It says in verse 33, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He's not keeping this between him and Peter because the other disciples and we and everyone must hear and understand that we must never deny the need for the cross or try to mute its message. We must see and understand that the cross is the mission of Jesus. It's why he came. And that there is no Jesus apart from the Jesus who died on the cross to bear the punishment for sin. Any attempt to rebrand him with the cross either absent or at the edges of the picture is no longer the real Jesus. He might not be the Christ we'd choose, but he is the Christ we need, so desperately need. The Christ who is concerned not for himself, but for us. The Christ who chose the cross. 
On Friday morning, my wife and boys and I went down to Encliffe Park to see the fly-past. I expect we all know about the fly-past that was happening. Um, in case you don't, this is the story. Ten or so aircraft uh, took part in that fly-past to mark the 75th anniversary of the crash of an American bomber there. On the 22nd of February 1944, the aircraft, nicknamed Mi Amigo by its crew, was in trouble and attempted to crash land in Encliffe Park. But they saw some schoolchildren playing on the grass, so they waved frantically for them to move out of the way. But the children didn't understand at the time, and so just waved back. So rather than risk hitting the children, the crew chose instead to crash into the trees where all ten on board died. One of those children playing on the grass was an eight-year-old boy called Tony, who recognised that those men chose to die so that he and his friends might live. Now in his 80s, Tony has spent decades lovingly caring for the memorial in Encliffe Park that marks the place they crashed and died. Some of you will have seen the interviews with him on TV and heard him explain that ever since that day, he's felt guilty for not having moved so the plane could land. As I and others uh, have reflected on that story, um, I think it's a strange mixture of beauty and tragedy. Beauty in the choice of those airmen to sacrifice themselves for those children. Tragedy that it cost them so much. Beauty in Tony's love for those men intending their memorial for all these years. But also tragedy that he's been carrying a burden of guilt for 75 years. Those 10 airmen, heroic though they undoubtedly were, I don't suppose would have boarded the plane that day if they'd known how the flight would end. But Jesus came for the cross. That was his mission. And he chose to die that we might live forever. It's not a sacrifice that should leave us feeling guilty, but one that lifts our guilt and carries it away. Our enduring response need only be love for him who loved and died for us. I hope Tony will come to hear and believe in the sacrifice that can take his and all our guilt away. Of Jesus who refused to be turned off course as he headed to the cross. Of the Christ who had to die and did. Who had in mind the things of God, not to save himself, but to save us from the consequences of our sin. And of course, we need to tell not just Tony, but everyone. And indeed, we need to keep telling ourselves of this Jesus and his cross. Because he is the Christ that each of us needs. And the message of the cross is one that must be heard. Because this Christ and his cross are the very heart of such very good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel of Jesus the Christ. Thank you for his mission and for the love that drove him to fulfill it. And we pray that you would hold the cross so firmly before our eyes that we would come to see more and more clearly the greatness of our sin and the kindness of our Saviour. Amen.